Father God, we do pray indeed that as we come before you now and as we seek to hear your voice in your word, we pray that you would uh, speak into our lives, that these things would be real for us in our lives today because we see Jesus more clearly and we see what it means to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start just by showing you a short video that's going to come up on the screen. So let's see if we can get that to, to work. They're coming. Now we'll see how these Russians deal with a crack SS division. Uh, hands. Have courage, my friend. Yeah. Uh, hands, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? The badges on our caps. Have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? They've got skulls on them. <laughs> have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? I don't, so... Hans... Are we the baddies? <laughs> Well, at the risk of uh, ruining a good joke by explaining it, I guess the reason that that sketch is kind of mildly amusing, as we all kind of mildly laughed, the comic conceit behind it uh, is that really this isn't how things work in real life. Um, no one thinks that they're the bad guy. Do you think you're the bad guy? I don't think I'm the bad guy, generally, when I go, go into conversations with people. Uh, you know, if I, even if I'm in the middle of some petty argument with somebody, on the whole, the reason that we're in the argument in the first place is because we're not the bad guy. It's the other person who's the bad guy. That's what we tend to think. You can go back to a blank screen. We don't have to stare at um, Robert Webb for the rest of the sermon. Uh, it's the same on a, on a much bigger scale, though, isn't it, with uh, dictators and tyrants. Do, do they think they're the bad guy? At some level, even if they're conscious of doing harm to others on some level, they'll usually have some twisted reason in their heads that makes it the right course of action for them. They're not the bad guys. Everyone else who's the bad guy. Now, of course, sometimes we look back and we realise, actually, in that situation, no, actually, I was the bad guy. I have been the bad guy, the bad person. But... Normally, in most situations, at the time at least, no one thinks they're the bad guy. Now, not everyone's been through Sunday school, but on the whole, if you have, or even if you haven't, you, you, you may have picked up over time that when the Pharisees are mentioned in the Gospels, in the Bible, there's a, an implied kind of internal boo, hiss. They are the bad guys. And so when we see Jesus kind of laying into them, as he does in this reading that we heard, um, rather bluntly, well, it's easy to go, yeah, you know, this is great. It's great to see Jesus laying it down with the bad guys, because they're really bad, these Pharisees. And we stand by and we watch and we think, do you know what, I'm really glad I'm not like them. But the problem, of course, is that that kind of I'm really glad I'm not like them kind of attitude is exactly the attitude that the Pharisees themselves had about a lot of things. 
We are better than other people. We don't need to be warned about anything. We've got everything sorted. We are the guys who keep the rules. We don't need this Jesus guy telling us what to do and offering to transform our lives. Just look at us. We have got it together. Now, I think if we stop and think about it, we'll realise, well, actually, that attitude is alive and well in North London, among Christians, and if we're honest, even among us. No one thinks they're the bad guy. But... Jesus came for bad guys. He is the doctor for the sick, he calls himself. He's the saviour for not good people, but bad people. He's the saviour of sinners. So we need to listen carefully to these warnings that he gives in these verses as he continues to engage with people opposing him. That's been the theme through these couple of chapters we've been seeing. And we've seen as we've been looking at, we've been seeing that human beings are not neutral blank pieces of paper who, if only convinced by the right evidence, will turn and believe in Jesus. It's not the lack of evidence that's stopping people coming to Jesus. The reasons human beings don't believe in Jesus are much more basic. We don't want to because the implications of doing so are too great. And that that theme that we've seen before in these chapters, if you've been with us, that that theme returns in these verses now. It's been said again that our minds are not neutral debating chambers where the best arguments get weighed up and the arguments come and we weigh them up kind of neutrally and we go for the best one. Actually, that is not how our minds work. Our minds are more like a room with a massive TV screen where we watch what we want to watch. And we believe the stories that we want to believe. And the question is, well, how then do you get someone to change the story that's playing in their head, as it were, to change the channel? Well, we change when we hear or see a better story than the one we're currently watching or believing. It's, you know, it's the same... When you're watching TV, isn't it? Or should we change the channel? Well, only if what, the, what you're offering is better than what, what we're watching now. We change if we think this story makes better sense. It works. It explains things better. It gives us truer and deep, deeper joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction than the story we had before. And sometimes it can also be helpful for somebody to point out how the story that we're currently watching and believing in our heads about life and the universe and our lives, that that story is utterly crazy. Sometimes it's helpful for somebody to point that out and show us that it makes no sense and the result is going to be pain and misery and destruction. And actually, that is the kind of dynamic that's going on here in these verses in in Matthew chapter 12. That's what Jesus is doing for the Pharisees showing where this story that they believe about themselves, where they're not the bad guys, where it ends for them. So here they are, verse 38, they ask for a sign. Now, if you've been with us, think about what this means in the context of all that we've seen so far. What has Jesus been doing? Particularly chapters 8 and 9, but even more recently, we have seen him doing signs, doing miracles, again and again and again and again. So here they come, Jesus 
we'd like you to do a sign to really prove who you are. Well, that, that, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's, it's like a, a lover, maybe, who's been given a gift and a candlelit dinner and flowers and a customised playlist and thoughtful lighting. You know, I don't know what ingredients you consider go into the perfect evening, but after all that, they're saying, I'm just not sure that you love me. Where's the evidence? Give me the proof. Well, hang on a minute. When that kind of thing happens, you realise that there's something else wrong here. There's a deeper malaise. There's a deeper problem. And it's unlikely that just one more ribbon-wrapped box of chocolates or whatever is going to make everything magically better. See, how, how can you ask for a sign when Jesus has already done so many miracles, already given so many signs of who he is? And people sometimes say today, you know, where's the evidence Christianity is true? There's no evidence at all. It's all a load of lies. And you say, well, hang on. No, no, there is evidence, actually. There's plenty of evidence. It's in the Bible. Have you looked at it? Oh, no, well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to look at that. And, and they're not going to look at it. The Christian writer John Lennox puts it like this. He says, people want to say Christianity is just a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. You heard that kind of thing people say? You know, it's just a fair, you, 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 you're just too afraid to kind of wake up to what the world is really like, kind of meaningless nothingness. And, uh, you, you know, you're afraid of that, so you have to kind of take refuge in this fairy tale called Christianity. He says, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. This isn't a fairy tale. There's plenty of evidence to show us that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did die and he did rise from the dead. It's not a fairy tale, and it explains life better than anything else. No, let me tell you what's a fairy tale. Atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. Do you see? Atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. For those who've already decided, oh, this can't be true. I don't want it to be true. I'm going to say it's not true because I don't want to go there. I don't want to have my, my life and my deeds exposed by the light. So I take refuge in saying there is no God. So Jesus is warning the Pharisees who've got the same kind of attitudes, even though on the outside of things they're religious people, but it's the same kind of attitude. He's warning his generation. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation, or a wicked and adulterous generation. Do you see that in verse 39? Adulterous not because they're being unfaithful to their human Spouses, actually the Pharisees, would have been very clear that they took their marriage vows extremely seriously indeed. You know, they're outwardly good, upright pillars of community, the kind of people you'd want to have round for dinner. But the point is, they have been unfaithful to God. Back in chapter 9, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom who's come to woo his people back to him. The metaphor of this relationship between God and his people is a marriage, and it's often pictured like this throughout the whole Bible. It's a key picture, a key metaphor. And this generation is adulterous because it's worshipping other gods instead. Do you see? So in response to their failure to listen, he gives them three warnings to highlight the folly and the danger of refusing to change the channel on the TV in their heads, as it were. 
So here we go. Here's the first point. You put it on the screen. If you persist in rejecting Jesus, you will miss the unexpectedly weak sign of Jonah. Can we put that on the screen? Have you, uh, have you got that? Should be there somewhere. If you persist in rejecting Jesus, you will miss the unexpectedly weak sign of Jonah. Verses 39 and 40. Jesus is not in the business of supplying signs on demand for those who've already decided that they are ignoring the evidence. There is one more sign to come, though, he says. But here's the thing. It will be the opposite of what you're expecting. The sign of the prophet Jonah is coming, says Jesus. What, what is this sign? Well, Jonah was for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, says Jesus. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is this sign he's talking about? Well, the, the reference to three days and three nights makes us think of the resurrection of Jesus. And then people get worried because, you know, well, surely Jesus died on Friday and rose on the third day on Sunday. That's not three days and three nights. You know, well, how does this work? And there's been so much um, stuff written about this. But that, 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 that's a misunderstanding of the Semitic way of speaking about time. A day and a night means anything up to one 24-hour period, but it could mean part of a day. So Jesus is in, in the tomb for three part days and nights. So he's comparing himself, do you see, to what happened to Jonah with his time in the fish. And although the kind of counting makes us think of the resurrection, what Jesus says is actually the sign is being dead in the tomb like Jonah being swallowed by a fish. What is the sign? Not the triumph of resurrection, but the shocking humiliation of death. The sign that will prove beyond doubt, I am who I say I am, says Jesus, is what? It's when I die. Isn't that a crazy thing to say? How can he, how can he say that? Well, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I'm not playing by your rules. You're muscling up for a fight to see whether in the end I'm really greater than you Pharisees. You know, perhaps if he can prove that he's superior with yet another extraordinary miracle, then they will believe. That's the implication. But Jesus says, be ready for the point where it will look like everything has failed and it's all over. The Son of Man God on earth came in weakness, not in strength. His life and his ministry were cross-shaped. And coming to him and following him will mean we need to give up trying to be strong and trying to prove our worth and humbling ourselves and saying, actually, maybe I haven't got all the answers. Jesus came in weakness. You know, so often we think the, the image that we need to give out of Christianity to the world is, is one of strength. We want our religious rights and our freedoms and we will sue you until you give them to us. 
or in personal relationships where we're sharing the gospel, we think, I need to show I've got all the answers to every question, and if I don't, I feel like a fool. And actually, that's why I generally keep things quiet, because I'm afraid that I might be exposed for being who I am, which is this weak person who hasn't necessarily got all the answers. But actually, sometimes it's the admission of weakness rather than the show of strength that will open doors with others. If you're going through a hard time, don't hide that from your non-Christian friends that you're, that you're praying for. You're longing to share the gospel with this friend, but you're not really being honest about what's actually happening in your life because you think, well, maybe because that, that will put them off. No, no, no. What, what, they're going through hard times too. They want to see that your Christian faith makes a difference when you're in the middle of that hard time. Share with them what a difference it makes to be a Christian in those times. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher, once told a story of a time when he was living in Wales and uh, a gathering of older ministers were discussing a younger minister who seemed to be highly gifted and had a bright and promising future ahead of him. You know, surely God would use him. And the ministers were, were hopeful and then one of them said, well, you know, this is all well and good, but you know, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And Lloyd-Jones said it hit him hard. And it it hits me hard to think about this as a minister. See, unless your self-righteousness and your pride are broken, you can talk all you want about believing the gospel, but you haven't really understood it. You haven't understood the sign of Jonah. And it was the same for Jonah himself. That's one of the points of the book of Jonah, and we heard it in the first reading. He he, he had refused to go to Nineveh, first of all, if you know the story. He he was told by God to go there, and he said, I'm not going there. That's a terrible place. They don't deserve to hear, to be given the chance to repent. He goes in the opposite direction, but then he was humbled, and he's swallowed by the fish. And then he does go to Nineveh, having been vomited onto dry land, as, as the story tells us. Um, and he goes to Nineveh, a different man, still with more to learn in chapter 4, but he's now a strength-out-of-weakness preacher. Well, who can say that they still don't have much to learn about this? Well, I certainly do, but it's not just for ministers of churches, as it were. It's actually for anybody who wants to follow Jesus. Anybody who wants to serve and be a minister of Jesus, a servant, that's what that word means. It's about recognising him in his weakness at the cross. And the thing is, the, the Pharisees, that just does not compute to the Pharisee mindset. As long as the movie that they're watching and believing in their heads and hearts is one about strength and power and about proving that you're good enough and proving that you're better than the other people around you, if that is your mindset, you are going to miss what is really going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. So Jesus is warning them. If you, cont- if you persist in resisting him and rejecting him, you will miss the unexpectedly weak sign of Jonah. And then he continues. So secondly, thank you. You will... If you persist in rejecting Jesus, you will reject the greatest of prophets and kings and will yourselves be rejected. So no one thinks they're the 
the bad guy. Again, in the, in the Pharisees' movie, in their heads, in their view of themselves, they're the good guys saving the world. They think they're doing the world and their people a favor by challenging Jesus like this. And Jesus says, do you know what? Big shock. You are going to be shown up on the day of judgment. It won't be a day of plaudits and rejoicing, you know, tea and medals, as they said in Blackadder. No, it will be a, a day of huge embarrassment as they are shown up by, of all people, for the Pharisees, of all people, they're going to be shown up by Gentiles. And not just any Gentiles, the, the, the people of Nineveh, the ones Jonah was barely willing to go and preach to because he thought they were so beyond the pale, and, and yet they repented. And then the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, as she's called in, in 1 Kings, as we've been reading in our Old Testament readings, she came to Solomon's court like the magi the, the, the ways the wise men at the beginning of matthew's gospel and she acknowledged like the magi that this was a king and they so that they repented they listened they 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 listened to the prophet's message the gentile queen acknowledged the king of uh, the, uh, the king solomon and the sting in the tail now for these guys is one greater than jonah and one greater than Solomon is here. And we saw earlier in the chapter, one greater than the temple is here as well. Here is the greatest here of prophets and kings and also priests. How embarrassing then to be shown up by these Gentiles. And there's even more evidence for the one who is greater than any of these. And you are ignoring it and ignoring him and just asking instead for another sign. Now it's the same today, isn't it? Jesus is greater than the greatest statesman, the greatest leader. And, and we need to say to ourselves and, and, and the, the world around us, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to base your life on? We think of who the world around us regards as prophets, it's the people who need to be listened to, who the world around us regards as kings, the people who kind of lead and rule, and we think, yeah, I'll follow that person. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Some politician who's here today, gone tomorrow, some celebrity, some YouTube star, tell you how to live your life and what you ought to be doing. Or, or worse, you know, I'm just going to follow myself, some people would say. How ridiculous. Here is somebody who speaks the truth, never lies. It's the greatest prophet. Somebody who rules with authority as the greatest king. And yet, do you know what? He's not doing any of that to just increase his fan base or his market share or his voter platform. There's no hidden motives. He's doing it to serve. He's doing it, he's giving himself up so that others might live. Isn't that a better story than the one playing in our, in, on the channel in our heads? Where, you know, we have to beat others down in order to raise ourselves up. Don't reject the greatest of prophets and kings. You yourselves will be rejected. That's what he's warning us. And then finally, thirdly, if you persist in rejecting Jesus, 
Your attempt to overcome evil without Jesus will only make things worse. We go on to the last one, last slide. Your attempt to overcome evil without Jesus will only make things worse. Jesus is still talking about this generation, verse 45. It's like a person, he says, who has managed to get rid of an evil spirit living in them. And you, just, you have to look, look hard at this because it's not immediately obvious what he means if you look at it. And, you know, what, what's he saying here? But what he's saying is this spirit has gone out, but the thing is nothing has taken the spirit's place in the heart of this person. So on the outside, this person and, and this person's life looks clean and tidy. But on the inside, it's empty. And as a result... It's a prime target for squatters, if you think of the house analogy. It's a prime target for reoccupation. And not by one, but by seven spirits who come and make things even worse than they were in the first place. And this is a, this is a, it's a picture that Jesus is using here to kind of grab their attention and to get them to see this is the kind of transformation that the Pharisees are trying to bring about in people through their obsession with laws and extra laws to make sure you don't break the main laws. Later in the Gospel, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. So what does that image mean, that whitewashed tomb? On the, see, on the outside, here's a beautiful tomb that's kind of sparkling white and clean. But on the inside, it's utterly rotten and smelly and maggoty and disgusting. And that's because keeping the rules can't change you on the inside. It can make a temporary change on the outside, but what you need is for Jesus to come and take up residence in your heart by his Spirit. The Old Testament was clear, as much as God gave them the law, he said it's your hearts that need to be changed. The law needs to be written on your heart so that you obey from the heart. So often Christians are heard to be all about rules and only rules. We're known only for what we say no to, but not for what we say yes to. A relationship with the living God through his Son who lives in us by his Spirit. Jesus is saying to us, just trying to live a moral life without coming to me, to Jesus, will end in disaster. It will, it will end up making things worse than they ever were in the first place. Because there's no power in rules. It's entirely down to me and my efforts to keep the rules. And when I fail, as I will, I will easily give up. So no one thinks they're the bad guy. The Pharisees didn't, and Jesus warns them, if you persist in rejecting me, you will miss what's really going on because you won't humble yourselves to see the power in Jesus' weakness. You will reject the one who is the greatest of prophets and kings. You may find approval now from your peers, but you will be deeply shamed on the day when God judges the world. And, and if you attempt to fight evil in your own strength without Jesus, you will only make things worse, he says. So come to him, let him take up residence in your hearts. That is, the, the, those are the warnings that he still gives us today 
But that is the invitation to, to us, to our world. So let's keep on sharing that. Let me lead us in prayer now. Father God, we want to acknowledge again that we are sinners who need Jesus. Help us to see that more and more clearly so that we can come to him so that we don't miss the sign of Jonah, the sign of his death. So that we come and we find forgiveness and a fresh start, a new life. So that we're freed from constantly having to prove ourselves and rest in the acceptance, the open arms, the loving arms that welcome us, whoever we are, whatever we've done, for a fresh start even today. We come again to Jesus, or even for the first time, we come and we trust in him so that he can live and be Lord in our hearts and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.